The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. God's Word. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as, as, far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you just heard, we are uh, wrapping up our little two-part sermon series, The Heart of Making Disciples. Um, And so hopefully this morning, uh, when you walked in, um, you received one of these cards. It just says simply on the top, who's your four, question mark, and it's got four lines on there. This card is going to be a pretty important part of how we respond this morning um, to this idea of what it means to be um, disciples who go out and make disciples. And so uh, this morning, what we need is prayer. Um, At the heart of prayer is this basic idea. It's us saying to God the Father, we can't, you can, and we need your help this morning. We need your help in every area of life when it comes to either preaching a sermon, being an intentional witness for Christ, walking in a way that's obedient to the Father in light of the grace we've received in Christ, whatever it might be, Prayer is a crucial point of maturing in the life of the believer. It's us decreasing, it's him increasing, and it's that lifelong pursuit of recognizing that. So what we're going to do before we begin this morning is just ask God for his power. Um, The concentration this morning, this basic idea, is going to be looking at these verses and recognizing that at the crux of it all is a people of God who are sent in the power of the Holy Spirit and how that is crucial for us to be intentional witnesses. It's that necessary power of being sent in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to do right now is ask God the Father to even empower this time with the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, so that we can even talk about what it means to be sent in the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? So let's do that right now. 
Father, I'm just reminded of your words to your prophet, Zechariah, when you told him that it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This morning, as we set our minds to the Scriptures to be conformed to the image of Christ, as we are transformed by the preaching of the Word, our aim this morning is not to approach this time in our power. The aim this morning is not to approach in our might. The aim is to approach this time humbly, recognizing that these moments, these minutes, must be by the Spirit, a demonstration of the Spirit and His power, so that faith would come to rest in the power of God. Unable to do that, Father. I do not own that ability, nor dare I even try your part. Your part is to tear open the heavens and to descend with pleasure, pouring out, filling with the Spirit, so that this time would be marked by the Spirit speaking, so that this time would be marked by the Spirit filling, and that this time would then result in a people going out sent by the Holy Spirit, so that people might come to believe, repent, place their faith in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, speak now. Tune our ears to His voice, O Father. It's in Your name I pray. Amen. If you remember last week, we introduced this this simple phrase here. Everyday people who intentionally bring Jesus into everyday life. Everyday people who intentionally bring Jesus into everyday life. We said that at the center of our focus this year and really at the center of this sentence is this idea of being an intentional witness for Jesus. Crucial to maturing as a disciple who makes disciples is this key element of making intentionality a priority. But as we confessed last week, for many of us, we're simply not intentional about being intentional. And so we asked ourselves the question, we wrestled with this last week, as a follower of Jesus, if intentionality is not a priority in my life, how can that change? How can that change? From where does proper motivation come for being an intentional witness for Jesus? We recognize that we can have all sorts of motivations for doing what we do, especially when it comes to being a witness for Jesus. But we wanted to know how the Bible seeks to answer this question. So we looked at Isaiah chapter 6 and we saw that the proper motivation for being an intentional witness is found by beholding the glory of the grace-giving God. If you remember, we studied Isaiah's interaction when heaven and earth merged in that one blinding vision 
that Isaiah received in chapter 6 of the book that bears his name. In this blinding vision of God's glory, Isaiah saw his sinfulness only to then be cleansed by the grace of God and then willingly go out as a witness of that grace. So when you and I are saved by grace and we continue to be refreshed by that grace, like Isaiah, we too will be motivated with this proper motivation. It's the motivation that's rooted and grounded in the glory of God Himself, the splendor of His holiness, the majesty of His glory. When we are refreshed with that vision of this glorious God who showered grace on us in Christ, that we too will then be motivated to go out as an intentional witness of the grace we have received because the drive of our heart will be, I want this friend, I want this neighbor, I want this coworker, I want this family member to know the glorious grace-giving God in the same way that I know Him. And that's that grace giving God a fresh vision of that glory that fuels and fans the flame of the heart that propels us properly to walk with intentionality in all areas of our life. But this morning, what I want us to consider is something else that's equally important as the proper motivation for being an intentional witness, and that's the necessary power for being an intentional witness. The necessary power for being an intentional witness. You see, it's totally possible to get ramped up with a proper motivation for being an intentional witness only to conclude wrongly that somehow it will be the power of my witnessing that will make someone come to faith in Christ. But the problem is that our witnessing will never be good enough in and of itself to accomplish that task. Our witnessing on its own was never designed by God to be the power that saves sinners. Rather, the power that saves sinners is the power of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God to open blind eyes and bring faith. The power that saves sinners is the power of God's Spirit to recreate a sin-stained heart so that it can truly see who Jesus is, repent, and believe for salvation. Now, God most definitely uses you. God most definitely uses me to share Jesus with others. This is most definitely our part to play. It is to be witnesses to Christ to others that God has placed in our lives. God works through individuals. He gifts us and He enables us to be the vehicles He desires so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can spread through us. That is, there's no shadow of doubt in regard to, to that. You read the Bible and it's tattooed all over the place. God sends us to open our mouths and articulate the gospel to those who live in our world. No shadow of a doubt there. But God's part to play. As we go in obedience, properly motivated by that vision of the glorious, grace-giving God, God's part to play is to then exercise His power to open spiritually blind eyes by the power of the Spirit as we're sitting there opening our mouths. 
the power that saves sinners is the delight of God to use us in other people's lives so that as we faithfully articulate the gospel, we can just sort of step back and go, that's my part. And then God of heaven and earth, the high king of heaven, the spirit comes and starts working in the people's lives. Our job, faithful articulation. Job of the spirit, death to life. Opening blind eyes to see Jesus and their need for him. Opening minds to understand the scriptures. Doing in Isaiah's life in others' lives. Seeing the glory of God. Seeing how he's holy. Seeing how I'm not holy. Seeing that if we are going to have a right relationship with one another, something needs to happen to me. I need to be changed. Turning our eyes to the cross. Turning our eyes to the Savior who is crucified, dead, and resurrected from the grave. Defeating Satan. Defeating sin. Defeating death. And looking to him and saying, I need him alone. That's how I'm going to be right. Whose job is that? Spirit. The necessary power, the Holy Spirit. So as we read our Bibles, what we find, I would argue, is that the model then for being a faithful witness, intentional, looks like this. It's the people of God intentionally bearing witness to the Son of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. So often, so much of our life is the first two little phrases there, void of the third. It's the people of God intentionally bearing witness to the Son of God, period. Void of the empowering of the Spirit of God. But the biblical witness is this. It's the people of God, eyes wide open to the glory of God, called to take the gospel of God, intentionally As a witness, not only did he know his own role, he also knew the need for the necessary power of the Holy Spirit. For instance, when he came to Corinth preaching the gospel, you can go and read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that he, quote, decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This was his part to play. He didn't come rolling in the Corinth with this idea of like, hey, I'm here. I ain't got to say nothing. I sure hope you guys get saved. He didn't do that. He came in and said, this was the decision I made when I rolled into Corinth. My decision is I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to articulate to you the good news of Jesus Christ. Him crucified, period. But, as he continues telling the Corinthians, he came to them in weakness. He came to them in fear. He came to them in much trembling. And as he did this, Paul also knew that his speech and his message must not be in plausible words of wisdom only, but here it is, his speech and his message must be a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's these two worlds colliding. 
Paul went in the Corinth. He said, I've got a part. God's got a part. I'm going to go in. I'm going to articulate the gospel. I'm making this decision. I'm going to make known among these people who don't know Jesus one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. He goes in. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's sharing the gospel. He's doing these things. The whole time, what he's doing is praying, God, I'm weak. God, I'm fearful. God, I'm trembling. Please, my words, the mere words of a man will not change the heart, change the mind of a sinner. I need a demonstration of the Spirit and of His power so that when faith gets awakened, it will be in Him who is the very power of God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's these two things together. It's these two things together. Seeing sinners repent and believe in Jesus did not rest in Paul's ability to get it done. Rather, it rested in the power of God to accomplish what He had purposed and promised to do with the sacrifice of his son. In other words, according to these verses, 1 Corinthians 2, the power of the Holy Spirit was Paul's confidence. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's exactly this type of Holy Spirit reliance that permeates and pervades the text that we're looking at this morning. So what we're going to do is, in a somewhat rapid fashion, look at these 12 verses, Acts chapter 13, and we're going to look at them in a four-part progression. And the first part we're going to notice is this, is that the Holy Spirit speaks. Notice the Holy Spirit speaks. Look at verse 1 in your copy of Scripture. I highly recommend that you get a copy of Scripture. There's that black hardback one around you. Pull out your phone, the Bible that you brought with you. I'd highly encourage you to follow along with me here, trusting, checking to see if I'm speaking the words of God here. Okay? Look at the verse 1. The Holy Spirit speaks. Now there were in the church at Antioch, the one writing this book is the man named Luke. Okay? Yes, the same Luke who wrote that gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Luke did a follow-up to the Acts of Jesus called the book of Acts that we're in, okay? So you've got Luke the doctor. He tells us here that there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And he lists five of them. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, there it is, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, we're going to circle back around to this idea. Notice that they're hearing the Spirit speak as a result of being a people of God, setting themselves to prayer and fasting. They lay their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them off. You see, the chapter begins in the city of Antioch as Luke shows us a church that is worshiping the Lord and fasting. And it's while the believers in the church at Antioch were doing this, including those five prophets that Luke listed out for us, he tells us that the Holy Spirit spoke to these believers. Now, we're not sure how the Holy Spirit spoke to them, but we do know this. They heard the Spirit speak. 
And what they heard was the Spirit saying this, I need you to take these two guys, Barnabas and Saul, I want you to set them apart because I'm going to send them out. You see, at this stage in redemptive history, the gospel had spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. But it had yet begun to spread to the end of the earth. But what the church in Antioch understood was that the gospel is not meant to be received only to be locked away for safekeeping. It is to be taken to those who have yet to hear. And the sense of the text is that the believers in Antioch understood this. That the gospel must not, cannot reside solely in Antioch. It must be flung to the far corners, the ends of the earth. It must be. But notice that what they don't do is this. The gospel's got to go. Let's do it. And they just go rushing out. Let's get some strategy. Let's get some systems. Let's get some structures. Let's do some demographic studies. All good things. But notice that before they do anything, they're like, we need to pray and we need to fast because we've got to hear the Holy Spirit tell us where does he want us to go. And so they set themselves to prayer and fasting. Rather than be a prayerless church that just simply did whatever it wants to, the church in Antioch turned to God in prayer and fasting. They needed divine guidance on how to go about reaching the lost. Million and one different directions they could have gone there in Antioch. Do you go to Southeast Asia? Do you go to Greece? Do you go to Athens? Do you go to Corinth? Do you go to Ephesus? Do you go back down? Just where do you go? Where do you go? There's lostness everywhere. How do we know where God wants us to go as intentional witnesses? Ask them. Ask them. That's what they're doing, God. We know we got to go, but where? Where? Prayer, fasting. God speak. God the Spirit speaks. And he says, step one, I need you to take these two cats, set them aside. I'm flinging them out. Is sort of the idea wrapped up there in verse 2. And it says, I'm calling Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It's sort of like I'm throwing them out. I'm sending these guys out to the nations. And I want you guys to hear, and I want you to go. They needed divine guidance. As one brother put it, I love this here, in their burden for the lost, these believers in Antioch, so it's the prophets, the teachers, the believers, the church there in Antioch. They could not, they dare not make a decision just because it seemed wise to them. They needed divine counsel, and by God's grace, they got it. The Holy Spirit spoke, said Barnabas, Saul, set them apart, I'm sending them out. The call of taking the gospel to Jesus to the nations, I want these two guys. And it's after the Holy Spirit speaks to the believers in Antioch that the second thing we see is this. The Holy Spirit then sins. The Spirit speaks, now the Spirit sins. Look at your copy of Scripture there. Look at verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. I know I've told you guys this before, but I'm not trying to be creative. Why is point number two, the Holy Spirit sins? Because verse four says this, so they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. All I'm trying to do is just show you guys what's in the text here. The Spirit is spoken, now the Spirit is sending. And the Spirit is sending Barnabas and Saul down to Seleucia. From there, they sailed to the island of Cyprus. 
they arrived at a city called Salamis, and they proclaimed, notice, the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. The side note is this, when we just studied the gospel of Mark, his full name was John Mark, that's who is here with them right now. The guy who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Mark, that's who this is right here at the end of this verse. Notice that the Spirit spoke to the believers as a result of prayer and fasting. What they learn is that the Holy Spirit says, I need you to go to Cyprus. And so they set sail for this island nation, arriving in a town called Salamis, and they show up proclaiming the Word of God. And it's as they work through the whole island preaching Jesus, as they go, they come to one of the last cities on the far western side of the little island nation of Cyprus, a city called Paphos, and they meet the central character that's really at the heart of this episode, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of Cyprus. And it was Sergius who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So a proconsul in this time is like the Caesar's representative. Caesar has an empire. He can't be everywhere. And so he says, I'm going to send out people to be like my ambassador, my representative, the proconsul. So the guy at the tippy top of the whole political sphere in Cyprus is Sergius Paulus. Barnabas and Saul show up preaching the word of God, and this guy says, get them. I want to hear it. Bring them to me. He sought them out so that he, Sergius Paulus, could hear the word of God. So here's the most powerful ruler in the entire island. Rome's representative himself. And apparently there was something in the Jesus message of these spirit-sent missionaries that caught the attention of the proconsul. But as happens so often, gospel opposition arises immediately. Luke tells us that it comes in the form of an acquaintance to Sergius, a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Interesting name. What his name really means is this, son of Jesus, or it can mean son of salvation. In the Gospels, you got Simon Bar-Jonah. It's Simon, son of Jonah. This guy's name is Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, son of salvation. That's what the idea behind his name means. So what we learn is that Saul was also called Paul, so what we have in Paphos is Paul the Apostle sharing with Paul the proconsul the good news of Jesus Christ. But in direct resistance to the proclaimed word of God, here stands Elymas the magician. Luke tells us like that's the meaning of his name, Bar-Jesus, Elymas, the same person. He's standing there opposing Barnabas and Saul. And he was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Instead of being a champion of the gospel, he chose to be a hindrance to the gospel. Have you ever had any elements in your life? Just show up out of the blue, straight up being a roadblock to someone hearing the gospel? Right, you're at work. Spirit kicks open an open door of opportunity. Spirit says, go and talk. You go and talk. You begin talking about Jesus. This person is interested. The dude over in the corner cubicle that you haven't had a conversation with for the past year. That's the time he decides to show up and go, 
work his way right into that conversation. He starts saying all kinds of insane things about Jesus and weirdo stuff he saw on the History Channel about the Gospel of Thomas and all these sorts of things. And you're like, what in the world? Like, this guy hasn't, we, he hasn't shown any interest in any conversation whatsoever. But now's the time that he decides to show up, spinning out this person away from hearing the gospel articulated clearly. Why? Because he's an Elymas. He's a bar Jesus. He's opposed to the gospel. And he's driven with the motivation to make sure that whoever is there hearing the good news of Jesus, he doesn't want them to hear about it. And so what happens is apparently the strategy of Elymas, who was, had the ear of Sergius, verse 8 was, step one, oppose Barnabas and Saul. Step two, divert the attention of the proconsul away from the words of Barnabas and Saul. So he's like, if I can do something to undercut these dudes, push them away, and then if I can come over here and like bend the ear of Sergius and be like, hey, man, all this Jesus stuff, this repent and believe stuff, this, is, this Jesus gave his life for you stuff. He came back from the dead? Come on, man. He's over there direct trying to counterpoint everything that Barnabas and Paul have been saying. And it's at this point that Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit fills. Verses 9 through 11. Paul straight away saw this opposition for what it was. An extremely serious attack by the evil one. And so filled with the Holy Spirit, man, do you just ever read your Bible and you're like, ooh, to be a fly on that wall, man. You guys understand what's going on here, right? Barnes and Saul preaching the gospel. Elemas is there opposing, 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 opposing. Then all of a sudden, filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul does this. Intently looks at him, man. Like he's coming up to him. Gets right. Whew. And that's like drama, man. That's like primetime TV stuff, man. Like beelines. Like this ain't happening on my watch, man. What's he do? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Intently looks at Elemis and says, you son of the devil. Man, I can only imagine what Barnabas is doing. Like Barnabas, like he's like the meek and lowly guy, right? At least in my mind. If you go back into the end of uh, chapter 11, um, Luke gives us a little background information on Barnabas. When Barnabas saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Um, it's Acts 4 that says he was known as the son of encouragement. Man, so I, I just see Barnabas like, hey, you know, he's just the dude. Like, yeah, man, everyone's good. Like, right, he just has that real sweet disposition. And so hey, there he is with the apostle Paul, and they're doing this. They're preaching the gospel, and I'm just sort of like, Elemis is there opposing. I'm just assuming Barnabas is like, yeah, man, like, hey, let's sit down and have a coffee. Maybe we can have a discussion. And then Bar and Paul's like, Holy Spirit, you son of the devil. And like, I'm just assuming Barnabas is like, where is this going to go, man? What's, what's going on here, you know? But here's Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. When you read the book of Acts, when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, it's that, it's that outpouring of the Spirit for that extraordinary power to be a bold witness in that moment. And Paul is going to be a bold witness here. You son of the devil, he says. You enemy of all righteousness. You enemy of all that is right. Full of deceit, 
full of villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. End of convo. See, at the heart of the issue is this. Elymas contradicted his name. His name is Bar-Jesus, son of salvation. But from far being a son of salvation, Paul sees him for who he is, a son of the devil. And that's because Elymas' active pursuit was to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. That is, he was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This is what it means to make the Lord's straight path of salvation crooked. It's to be that man, it's to be that woman who actively seeks to turn your children away from the faith, turn your friends away from the faith, turn your family members away from the faith, If that is you, this is Elymas. You are him. Because to be that person who stands in opposition to the pursuit of God, pursuing people, drawing people to himself, it makes you an anti-Christ figure. Here's Barnabas and Paul proclaiming Christ. Here's Elymas saying, I am anti-Christ. I'm anti what they're about. And so to be that man, to be that woman who actively urges someone away from faith in Christ is to take those straight paths of salvation that God in His sovereignty crafts so that people with the gospel would meet someone who needs to hear the gospel. He's designing those straight paths for that Elymas figure to show up and say, really, I think you need to go over here or actually over here or maybe over here or somewhere over there. That is someone making the straight path crooked. It's that person who seeks to turn you away from Christ. You see, Elymas was doing the very opposite of God. He was resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. But the Lord God is in the business of making straight paths of salvation that bring the gospel to sinners who need to hear the gospel. Just think about this. In Cyprus, 200 miles away from Antioch in Syria, In the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, there was a man whom God wanted in the kingdom of God, Sergius Paulus. And God was saying, in effect, I want this man. And the way I'm going to bring the straight path of salvation to this man is by sending two men who have been entrusted with the gospel. Two men called by the Holy Spirit, two men sent by the Holy Spirit, one of whom I will fill with the Holy Spirit. I will bring them together, and I will ensure that as they walk in obedience to my calling, a glorious conversion will take place, and no matter what Satan may try to do to oppose it, the gates of hell will not prevail against the advancing kingdom of the high king of heaven. So here's God saying, I'm in the business about making straight paths of salvation. And there he is, the high king of heaven, ruling on his throne, And what he sees over here is a little church saying, this gospel's got to go out. 
We don't know where to go next. We're going to bend our knee in prayer. We're going to say, we can't, we don't know, you know, you tell us. And we're fasting. We're dedicating all of our energy to this singular pursuit. God, speak so we can go. We want to know to whom you're sending us. And here's God saying, I see these people saying, where should we go? I know there's a dude over here that I'm drawing to myself. He needs a gospel witness. So God the Spirit says, guys, get up. I'm sending you. And boom, he makes a straight path right to them. That straight path of salvation. That's the gospel advance that you see in the New Testament. It's God in the business of making straight paths of salvation. And powerless to prevent the spread of this gospel immediately mist and darkness falls upon Elymas. And he goes about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And what we continue to read is that the result of the people of God intentionally bearing witness to the Son of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, is that people believe that people believe. Look at verse 12. Then the proconsul believed. He believed. Notice the proconsul was not won over by appealing to his intellect. Do you guys notice that curious little, little tidbit up there in verse 7? What's your Bible say there in verse 7? He was with, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. Why that little nugget right there? I think there's a lot of implications to it, but I think one of them is at least this. Sergius did not come to believe Jesus merely as a result of Barnabas and Paul's intentional proclamation of the word. Like, he didn't come to them just like, hey man, here's the logistical aspects of all these things, and here's how we porter and put all these things in place. It wasn't just straight appeal to intellect, straight appeal to intellect. Hey, make the logical decision. He doesn't do that. Barnabas and Saul intentionally proclaimed the word of God. And what Luke tells us is that Sergius Paulus believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. That is, the proconsul came to believe Jesus as his only hope of salvation by witnessing a combination of proclamation and power. See what's going on there? Proclamation on the part of Barnabas and Saul. God the Spirit empowering it. Sergius Paulus is sitting there watching this thing, hearing the proclamation, seeing the power of the Holy Spirit working through these gospel missionaries. And what happens is he sees what has occurred. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And he says this, I believe Jesus. I believe. I believe His promise. I believe He resurrected from the dead. I believe he's my hope of salvation. I believe. He came to believe Jesus is his only hope of salvation. It was that combination of proclamation and power. It was as Barnabas and Paul faithfully proclaimed the gospel, owning their part, empowered by the Holy Spirit, God's part, resulting in the salvation of arguably the most important political figure on the island of Cyprus. Not because Barnabas and Saul were phenomenal communicators of the truth, but because God delights to empower the feeble proclamations of men. 
Listen, Jonah 2.9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And when this Lord is at work, nothing can stand in His way. Nothing can stand in His way. That person that you're tempted to believe right now that is too far beyond the saving arm of God is a lie from Satan himself. No one is beyond the saving arm of the Lord. No one. When he's at work, nothing can stand in his way. Just think about it. In Acts 13, geographical distance could not stand in the way of Sergius Paulus believing. The Mediterranean Sea could not stand in the way of the proconsul believing. Even human opposition could not stand in the way of the proconsul believing. With saving pursuit, God drew a straight line from Antioch to Paphos, ultimately saying, I will build a highway from this city to that city. I will see the glory of my name and the good news of my gospel made great on this island and in this man. It's going to happen. Because I'm the high king of heaven who sits in the heavens and I do as I please. And I'm drawing this man. And I'm sending these people. He is going to hear and he's going to believe. And notice, and notice, this is where our response time is going to start to come into place. Connor, wherever you're at, man, if you want to start working your way up here. Notice this, that it all started with a single little church and two actions. Prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. That's how that gospel reached Sergius Paulus. A little church saying, the gospel cannot exist in these four walls alone. It must go out. We're going to pray, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit, to whom are you sending us? Spirit, who in my life are you making a straight path of salvation? So that I, in obedience to you opening my eyes, can walk this straight path of salvation and be the instrument in your hand to bring the good news gospel to this person that you are drawing and calling to yourself. So here's how we're going to land the plane this morning. In the coming weeks as a church, we're going to spend time fasting for the lost. Leading up to Easter and coming out of Easter, um, there are going to be some dedicated times where we corporately are going to set aside certain days and certain weeks so that we can be a people fasting to hear God. But it definitely, most definitely begins with prayer. And so what I want you to do is to find this little card here, okay? Hopefully, as you're coming in, you should have received, received one of these cards. If you did not receive a card, go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, Darren Ralph, um, JB, Mason, raise your hand. You can get, get one of these cards here. They'll put one in your hand. But what you need to do now is to reach for this card that was handed to you this morning. And what we're going to do is we're just simply going to follow the model of Acts 13 in seeking to answer that question at the top of your card. Who's your for? We're going to seek to 
follow the model of Acts 13. You see, like Barnabas and Paul, we're going to trust that God is making a straight path of salvation to someone in your life. A straight path of salvation to someone in your life. And because this is true, you, me, we need to know who these people are. To use the language of our verses this morning, we need God the Spirit to reveal to us who the Sergius Pauluses are in our life. More than anything, we need the Spirit to speak so we can listen and then go empowered by Him. So over the next several minutes, here's how you can respond. You can respond in these two ways. If you are a believer in Christ here this morning, my encouragement would be response number one is to take the next several minutes in prayer. To ask the Lord, you can see two of those questions up on the screen. It can begin with this question here. Lord, who are the four in my life that you're calling me to? Who in my life are you making a straight path of salvation to? Or maybe more simply, the question that just is gripping right now is this. Lord, Spirit, to whom are you sending me? Because we can go in all sorts of directions and spend all sorts of energy. But I don't know about you. I want to be a Spirit-led, prayer-led, fasting-led church. I want my life to be marked in this way. To where I'm just not busy doing, 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 assuming that the Lord's happy with my doing just for the sake of doing. I want my doing to be a honed act of obedience of saying, God, who is it in my world right now? You've made a straight path of salvation. Spirit, speak to me. Put them on my mind. Write them on my heart. Because what I want to do is walk in grace-fueled obedience to your speaking so that like Barnabas and Paul, I can be that one who goes and takes the gospel to them. That's what this card right here is for. Over the next several minutes, leading into the Lord's Supper, Connor's going to be praying, playing on his guitar, and we're going to be praying, asking the Spirit to speak. My encouragement would be to latch on to one of these questions and say, Spirit, speak. I need you to tell me to whom you're sending me. And then listen. Listen. Ask the Spirit, tune my heart to hear your words. To whom are you sending me? And then what's going to happen is when you come up to take the Lord's Supper, there's a little basket here. And my encouragement would be as you come up to take the Lord's Supper, whether it's in the two tables in the front or there's a table in the back, is to after you've spent a fistful of minutes begging the Holy Spirit to speak and to make clear who these people in your life are, to come and then place those into the basket And then you can respond by taking the Lord's Supper if you are here trusting in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation. You see, the Lord's Supper is this. It's not just some spiritual thing you do for the sake of doing a spiritual thing on Sunday mornings. The Lord's Supper is this. It's an outward act of an inward reality. Because when you come and take this little cup of juice, when you come and take that little tiny white chiclet of bread, what you're doing is when you eat the bread, what you're saying is, Christ, your body sacrificed on the cross, that's my hope of salvation. 
When you take that little cup of juice and you pour out that juice into your mouth, your mind is meant to drift to the pouring out of the blood of the Son of Man on the cross so that you could be washed white as snow. And so what you're doing is you're eating and you're drinking as a remembrance of the reality that the body and the blood of Christ are your only hope of salvation. So if that is true of you here this morning, man, that response is totally where you need to be. Some of you here this morning, you're saying this, I don't have that kind of relationship with Jesus. This isn't a chance for you just to go chill mode over the next couple of minutes. My encouragement for you would be this, ask God, help me to see you clearly. Speak to me. Maybe you got doubts. Maybe there's this whole, like, man, this Jesus thing, like, I just don't know, man. Listen, Jesus is not rocked by your questions. And you are welcome to ask him questions, questions, ask him, help me to see you. Help me to wrestle with these questions and these doubts, these unbeliefs that I have. That would be your response this morning. So here we go, okay? The time is now to respond. You got questions about Jesus? I'll be glad to talk to you in the back, but for now, my encouragement would be this. Bow your head, wrestle with the Spirit. Ask Him some of these questions. Spirit, speak, please. I don't want to be a prayerless Christian. I'm not asking you to speak. And then close your mouth. Listen. Write down who's hitting you. It might be one person, it might be four, it might be six. Listen to who the Spirit's leading you to. Respond by dumping in the basket. Take the Lord's Supper. And then we will worship the Lord in song when all is said and done. Let me pray for us. Father, speak. Spirit, speak. We need you so bad. Respond now in a way to where the unmistakable voice we hear is the Spirit saying, it's this person in your life. I'm making a straight path of salvation to them. Then God, help us write that name down. And then maybe just say this in response to you. Spirit, I'm scared like Paul. I'm trembling. I'm fearful. I know what this means if the Spirit's telling me this is the one to whom I'm making the straight path of salvation. But God, in our fear, and our trembling, in our weakness, would we then follow up and say, but it's not going to be by my strength. It's not going to be by my power that this person hears about the Lord Jesus. It will be by the Spirit of the Lord of hosts. God, help us to walk in joyful, faithful obedience. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Talk to the Spirit. Respond appropriately.